Hello, podcast listeners. We have three exciting changes to share with you. First is that we're moving to Monday. This will kickstart your week with game-changing pharmacotherapy topics and hopefully make it easier to listen in. Our first Monday episode will start on October 18th. Second, claiming CE credit is even easier than before. If you are a pharmacist, there is one membership for CE, and this is podcast included. Once you activate your membership, you can get CE credit for just listening in each week. You simply click on the link in the show notes of each episode and claim your CE. If you don't have a membership yet, there is a link in the show notes to sign up. It's super easy. And last but not least, you'll notice a few naming changes. Starting in mid-October, the podcast show will be changed to CE Impact. You'll still get new Game Changers episodes every Monday, and now you'll also get the Preceptive Practice and Level Up Pharmacy Practice episodes, which makes it super easy to get new content. You don't have to do anything else if you already follow the podcast, but watch for the show name to change. For more information, check out the What's New section of the show notes. Welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. How you doing? Hope things are going okay in your world and you're staying safe and all that kind of fun stuff. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for taking the time to do that. Uh, if you are new to us, I hope you really enjoy our show where we try and give you guys the really up-to-the-minute latest stuff on pharmacotherapy and medicine. And if you're a long-time listener, thanks for continuing to listen. Please head over to wherever you get your podcast, hit that like button, subscribe if you haven't already done so and most importantly head over to CE Impact, join the pharmacist network if you will and take a look at all the great CE programs they have including ours where you can actually get CE for listening to my voice for a very a reasonable rate and that includes CME for providers as well. We've had a couple of COVID weeks in a row so good news is that we're not going to talk about COVID this week which I think we're all happy about. The bad news is we did stay in the realm of infectious disease because I found came across a very interesting paper that was published in Animal Corporal Agents Chemotherapy uh, just this last week taking a look at the use of lincomycins, in particular clindamycin uh, for the treatment of staph aureus bacteremias and for those not in the know I was always taught and you were probably always taught if you remember that's a big big no-no we don't use static drugs to treat bacteremias or endovascular infections with staph aureus because we get bad outcomes we want sidal stuff and so I suspect this is a study that I don't think is going to 100% change practice but I think will open the door to potentially uh, taking a look at a bigger study uh, that might in fact change practice. And it's a good example of how sometimes circumstances force physicians to do stuff, and then they kind of go backwards and take a look at the data. And so it's kind of an interesting paper anyway. So just to kind of catch everybody up on where we're at on this, remember that we're going to be talking about Staph aureus, in particular MRSA. Uh, remember the Staph aureus is still one of the biggest players as far as hospital and community-acquired infections. It's a huge player in community-acquired uh, morbidity and mortality. And of course, the rise of MRSA strains, which of course, are resistant to all beta-lactams and many other classes, has dramatically complicated the treatment of staph aureus infections and has really made Vanco one of the most common drugs we use in the hospital for its treatment. The other problem with that, of course, is that community-acquired MRSA, which is largely responsible for skin and soft tissue infections, the incidence of that has dramatically risen all worldwide. And here in Des Moines, our antibiogram suggests around 50 to 55% of our community isolates are community-acquired MRSA. So we're definitely seeing a big rise in the last 20 years of MRSA infections and how to treat them. And that's a problem because MRSA infections, even compared to its MSSA 
brother, if you will. Patients who have bacillus infections tend to have more underlying diseases. They tend to have longer hospitalizations. They tend to be on much other antimicrobial therapy. Basically, we've selected out in many cases for MRSA. But even when we take uh, you know, into account all those things and take a look at the studies, MRSA infections are associated with significantly greater mortality and morbidity linked to hospitalization treatment costs than MSSA infections. So that's kind of the MRSA piece of this. And now the whole static versus societal thing, and I apologize if I'm going to trigger some PTSD for the pharmacists in the audience listening, thinking about pharmacology. Remember that big difference between most antibiotics is static versus societal, right? So bacteriostatic agents are agents that inhibit the growth of the bacterial cells, but don't actually kill them. So basically keep the next generation of bacterial cells from growing, whereas bactericidal drugs actually kill the organism. And I think most people will say, well, gee, if I had to choose, I'd probably rather pick the antibiotic that's societal versus static. But it's much more complicated than that because um, unfortunately, the categories aren't absolute. An antibiotic may have societal properties against certain uh, organisms and static properties versus another. For example, vancomycin, which is a big player in MRSA infections, is normally bactericidal against stock aureus. So definitely see that used for that, but it's bacteriostatic against enterococci. A linazolid, which is generally considered static against staphylococci and enterococci, may actually be bactericidal against streptococci. So, you know, unfortunately, you can't just say vancomycin is a societal drug for everything because it's not. It really depends on the organism. And to complicate that further, there is the phenomenon of tolerance, which is basically certain uh, strains of organism that would normally be killed by the agent are actually only inhibited by the agent. And so, and that seems to be genetically determined as well. And so, you know, it'd be very nice if we had a nice clean thing to say, okay, this drug is always static, this drug is always sidle, but unfortunately, we really don't. That being said, the question comes, well, you know, if I have a choice, should I choose a static versus sidle uh, antibiotic to treat an infection? And largely, the answer to that question is, no, it doesn't matter. You know, many, many infections respond just as well to bacteriostatic agents as they do to bacteriocidal ones. But in particular for Staph aureus, in particular for bacteremias or for endovascular infections like endocarditis, it has long been thought that bactericidal agents should be the preferred agents just because of the theoretical faster resolution of infection and theoretical improved clinical outcomes. So this has really been considered dogma in ID circles for at least as long as I've been a pharmacist now, almost 30 years, and I'm sure probably long before then. And so it's widely accepted, but as you might imagine, anything that's that heavy of a dogma, there's very limited data actually showing that that sidal agents do have superior activity in clinical practice to static agents. Now, you know, that's going to be a hard study to pull off in many cases for you know ethical reasons when the guidelines are saying no you really should use uh, sidal agents instead of static agents so we have to kind of take a look back at studies done in the 1970s 1980s and 1990s for really the last big sets of studies that have looked at static versus sidal agents for staph aureus and in general what they found was that in patients who have for example neutropenic patients there was some studies done in the 1980s that suggested that sidal drugs tend to do better than static drugs in patients who have neutropenic fever, neutropenic bacteremia. Okay, that kind of stands to make sense. And most neutropenic sepsis regimens are routinely treated with bacteriocidal agents, particularly beta-lactams. Some have looked at Staph aureus bacteremia pneumonias, and they actually found that, that with MSSA bacteremic pneumonias, that vancomycin was inferior to beta-lactams, in this case, cloxacillin. And we've known for a long time that for MSSA, vancomycin is probably inferior to, to beta-lactams. So, I mean, if you do have someone on vancomycin for an infection, and get lucky and it ends up being methicillin-sensitive staph aureus, you really should try to switch them if antibiotic allergy or something isn't a problem. 
back to a beta-lactam because you'll probably get better outcomes. And then, you know, taking a look at endocarditis and, and stuff, again, many of the data suggested with MSSA endocarditis, vancomycin was worse than beta-lactams. Animal studies had suggested staph aureus endocarditis done in the 1980s and 90s that cytal drugs tend to do better in static. So based on that, you know, all the major guidelines, IDSA, everyone else pretty much says don't use cytal agents for staph aureus bacteremias, especially when associated with endocarditis. And so that's where this study kind of comes into play and takes a look at the leucosamides. In the United States, the only leucosamide antibiotic left available is clindamycin, but the study was done in, in Australia. And the study points out that depending on the part of the world you live in, clindamycin actually has really good MRSA activity. It's cheap, it's oral, and fairly well tolerated. Yes, we'll talk about the side effects and stuff like that, but it doesn't require therapeutic drug monitoring, things like that. Also, clindamycin has long been known in vitro to inhibit uh, toxin production of staph aureus, which may improve you know, clinical outcomes. And we often add clinda as a toxin binding agent in patients with, for example, uh, toxic shock syndrome and things like that, even though the data for that isn't all that great either. That's it's just something that is commonly done. So the theory is, well, gee, if it works against MRSA and it has this toxin binding production and it's oral and it's cheap, why aren't we using this for bacteremias? But again, you have this kind of push and pull where the guy guidelines say don't do it. And so, you know, there's some medical legal issues and all that sort of stuff. So this study in Australia was done in tropical Australia in Cairns Hospital, which is a tertiary referral hospital in tropical Australia that serves a population of about 300,000 people dispersed across an area of 380,000 kilometers. So again, a huge, huge section of land with about 20% of the population identified as indigenous Australians. And so because of the wide spacing that they had and things along those lines, these physicians, when they were confronted with staph aureus bacteremias often did not have the luxury of sending everybody home with vancomycin to an infusion center because there was no infusion center. And so really, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, they had no choice in some of these cases, but to try to use uh, clindamycin, uh, mostly clindamycin in these patients, cosamide antibiotics in these patients, just because they needed to treat them. But unfortunately, there really wasn't anything else they could use that was cheap, that was oral, that you could feel comfortable sending some hundreds of miles away to their home to be treated. So this was a, a retrospective cohort study. It was a 13-year study. So they looked at data for over 13 years. And one of the things they noticed was that in the early years of this pattern of using clindamycin for staph aureus bacteremias, the percentage was relatively low. And then as the years went on, and I think probably because the physicians were seeing clinical success with it, that those numbers went up. And so they do point out that as the years went by and then we approached 2020, they actually had many more patients that they could take a look at who had staph aureus bacteremia and were sent home on at least a partial clindamycin regimen. So in the study, they included anyone over age 16 with an MRSA bacteremia between, again, 2007 and 2020. It was a retrospective cohort study, so they collected demographic, clinical, and laboratory data. They also looked at the comorbidity burden using the Charleston Comorbidity Index, which is the standard index used. They then divided patients by their treatment regimen, and basically they said that they would count leucosamide or clindamycin monotherapy for patients just that's all they received. And then if you received more than 50% of the regimen, they would consider it a, le a leucosamide or clindamycin predominant regimen. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality. They also looked at adverse drug reactions, and they defined that as the development of acute kidney injury. I guess you might imagine some of these patients had received vancomycin, hepatic dysfunction, or C. difficile diarrhea. The doses in this country, they do have leucosamide. We don't in the United States, but in the United States, they usually
usually received a uh, clindamycin 450 milligrams three times daily, which is about the highest dose you can probably get away with without having too much GI problem. So again, looking at this uh, interesting study uh, done in Australia, kind of rural Australia, if you will, or tropical Australia, looking at the use of clindamycin for MRSA bacteremias. As in this retrospective study, they had 176 episodes of MRSA bacteremia that satisfied the inclusion criteria. Mean age in this group was 52, so relatively young. About 60% were male, and about 50% identified as indigenous Australians. Uh, the most uh, common cause of the bacteremia was a skin soft tissue infections, about 44%, and then following that, um, either pneumonia or unknown, basically. They did, of course, do cultures, and they found that 23% of these 173 MRSA bacteremias had a isolate that was either uh, intrinsically resistant or inducibly resistant to the lincosamides and clindamycin. So, of course, those patients did not receive those. So, they excluded those patients. And then they took a look at everybody else. And they basically found that at least one day of intravenous lincosamide therapy was prescribed in about 45% of patients. And about 36% of patients received a lincosamide or clindamycin predominant regimen. So, again, about 30%, 6% of patients had 50% or more of their antibiotic regimen being clindamycin. Okay. As I pointed out earlier, they noted that this incidence of using uh, this class of antibiotics for Staph aureus bacteremia went up as the years went down and actually was almost half of the regimens they were using by the time 2020 rolled around, which is kind of interesting. As you might expect, younger, less gravely ill patients with fewer comorbidities were more likely to receive a lincosamide predominant regimen. That makes sense. If you're well enough to go home, that you're probably going to be younger, you're probably going to have fewer comorbidities, and that would be the people they would probably self-select to put on an oral therapy, right? So then what they did is they did a multivariate analysis to say, okay, we're going to try and say, was a clindamycin therapy associated with a positive or negative outcome? This multivariate analysis, then they took a look at all the things that could affect that. So they looked at age, they looked at gender, they looked at the Charlton comorbidity index, they used SOFA score and year of hospitalization as well to take a look at, at the case fatality rate. And when they found that, when they put all those in, into their multivariate analysis, they actually found that the close mind was actually independently associated with survival. It wasn't better or worse. They actually found that a clindamycin predominant regimen actually in, was independently associated with survival. It, the odds ratio was actually 0.05 but it had a very, very wide confidence interval, uh, but it did reach statistical significance at 0.01. They then uh, took a look at average drug reactions and found that patients who were getting predominantly vancomycin regimens, probably not all that surprisingly, were more likely to develop acute kidney injury, while as people who had the predominant lincomycin or clindamycin were more likely to develop nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Interestingly, not a single case of Clostridium difficile diarrhea was reported in this in retrospective court. Now it's possible maybe given the wide distances these people are away, maybe they weren't checked for it. It's hard to tell, but basically when they even broke it down by diarrhea as a risk factor. It was 1.8% of people had a severe diarrhea in the clindamycin predominant group compared to 1% in the non-clindamycin predominant group. So that was quite interesting. And they did the same multivariate analysis, uh, and they found that clindamycin predominant regimens were less likely to develop acute kidney injury. Again, not all that surprising. So the authors of, of the paper suggest that this is, you know, again, a small retrospective study, and I totally agree. This is by no means a practice-changing study, but they do point out that this is probably one of the 
first papers ever done that has taken a look at giving oral clindamycin as the major therapy or step-down therapy uh, to patients who are being discharged from the hospital after receive, you know, usually four weeks of antibiotic therapy for Staph aureus bacteremia, and they seem to okay, and again, in this cohort. Now, again, this cohort was younger. They didn't have as many comorbidities, and they point all those things out, but they were also surprised that the glucosamide was actually associated with, with an improvement in outcome and a decrease in mortality, where I think they were probably expecting that there would be no benefit or, or, or harm to it. So, so you know, what is that? They do point out that probably some of this benefit is likely due to, to a mortal time bias. People who received clindamycin had to survive long enough for the sensitivity to be confirmed and an echocardiogram to be performed to exclude endocarditis because they did exclude all their endocarditis patients. So they point out that that's probably part of it, but that probably doesn't explain all of the potential benefit that they found in their multivariate analysis. So, you know, what do I make of all this? I think the way to kind of take this and run with it is a hypothesis generating study. It is probably one of our first studies done in the 21st century that suggests that in lower risk bacteremia patients, Patients, especially ones who tend to have bacteremia from a cause like a skin and soft tissue infection, we may not need to give them four full weeks of intravenous vancomycin or another intravenous expensive medication that we might be able to step down to a clindamycin and, and, and complete therapy. Now, there was a study done a couple of years ago that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that looked at oral step-down therapy for uh, endocarditis patients, but the, the problem was the majority of those patients did not have staph aureus, so we really can't take that uh, uh, study and, and translate it to staph aureus endocarditis. And in this study, they excluded everybody who had staph aureus endocarditis. So again, I think endocarditis is really taken off the table when we're discussing this, but we do see patients who have staph aureus bacteremias for a variety of reasons. This study does suggest that, that, uh, um, uh, there might be a potential benefit to step-down therapy with Clinda. Now, of course, we need to do a randomized control trial to do so. Will that happen? Of course, you know, it's going to have to be some independent body that funds such a study. So, you know, it will not be a drug company, obviously. So, you know, would it be possible that the National Institutes of Health here in the United States or, you know, some other organization could get together and, and fund this? I think it has the potential to save healthcare systems tons of money and patients tons of money when we talk about the costs and risks of having a pick line put in, going home for four to six weeks of antibiotics, and the use of vancomycin associated with acute kidney injury. So fascinating study, and maybe one of the very first studies to take a look at this. I'm certainly not going to start prescribing Clinda for my MRSA bacteremias, but this is intriguing, and I hope some experts in the field decide to take a look at this in a more rigorous way. So, so that's the study for today, and that, that's our episode. Thanks again for listening. Uh, again, uh, hit that like button and uh, head over to CE Impact and subscribe to us and subscribe to our CE for for a very low and reasonable rate to hopefully you find interesting and helpful CE that you can listen to very, very quickly. So uh, that's it for me. I'll catch you next week. Remember that time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Have a good day. Thanks for listening in. Check out the CE for this podcast at ceimpact.com. Or download the Pharmacy Network app by searching CE Impact in your app store. And join the Game Changers Podcast Academy. Happy learning!